Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. As you just heard me say, this podcast is about software and the people who create it, and that has never been more true than with this episode, where I get to sit down and talk about Clojure and Datomic Cloud and the new IONS facility, and what the word design actually means with none other than the creator of Clojure and Datomic, Cognitech's own Rich Hickey. But before we jump into the conversation, I do have a couple of announcements. The Copenhagen Closure Meetup is happening on June 21st um, in Copenhagen. So if you're going to find yourself in Copenhagen in a couple of weeks, have a look at meetup.com slash Copenhagen dash closure dash meetup. And also the next gathering of the Denver Closure Meetup is happening on June 28th. So go on over to meetup.com slash den of closure. Great name. Uh, for all the details. If you have a closure related event you'd like us to mention here, drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Rich Hickey and episode 142 of the Cognicast. here. All right. Hello and welcome. Today is May 25th, Friday, May 25th in the year 2018, and this is the CogniCast. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome a frequent guest of this podcast, Closure Creator and Cognitech CTO, Rich Hickey. Welcome to the show, Rich. I should say welcome back. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, as as a frequent uh, guest on the show, I'm sure you're aware that we usually start out by asking our guests to relate some experience of art. It can be just about anything you want it to be. I guess uh, my first uh, rock concert was was an exciting experience of art. I was uh, 13 years old and went to an outdoor concert of the band Yes, and uh, I was already a fan. Uh, but I had never seen the music performed live. It's quite intricate, and they nailed it, and it made me incredibly excited. And that's why I became a guitar player. Wow! So, so how did you how did you come to uh, go to that particular concert? Was it your idea? Did your friends drag you along? Uh, uh, it was a collective idea from myself and my friends. It was very exciting. And Steve Howe is the guitar player for that band, and he's uh, he's still my idol. Okay, um, so my understanding is that you want to talk to us about something new you've cooked up here at Cognitech, something called IONS. You want to uh, introduce us to the idea? Sure. We're, uh, we're working on the next phase of Datomic Cloud, which is Datomic running on AWS. That's available through the AWS Marketplace. This basically is... Uh, Datomic Cloud is... Uh, an application you start for Marketplace and it runs a CloudFormation template and sets up a bunch of AWS infrastructure to uh, to host and run Datomic. What you end up with 
is either uh, one or more instances running in AWS with storage and DynamoDB and S3 buckets and a bunch of networking all configured, uh, ready to be accessed from uh, client library. And so we have this great infrastructure, but the first iteration of Datama Cloud was missing a feature we had in uh, Datomic on-prem, uh, which is sort of the ability to integrate um, your own code into Datomic so that you could customize Datomic. In particular, the two areas uh, we allow that uh, in on-prem have been uh, transaction functions. Right. These are functions that can do constraints and things like that, and query functions. And so we needed a way to provide similar capability uh, in cloud so that you could enhance cloud. But of course, there are some challenges to doing that because now uh, you know, with, uh, with on-prem, we have things called peers. And what that is is essentially your own application into which you host uh, Datomic's uh, query engine as a library. And you can obviously integrate other things into that because it's your own application. You're making the class path and things like that. Now we have this inversion where we're starting Datomic on EC2 instances. You're not um, actively doing that. It's automated for you. Right. Um, yet, yet you need to get your own code on those boxes. So we thought about the problem more generally of um, enhancing Datomic Cloud with your own code. And took on a little bit bigger uh, of a challenge than just doing query and transaction functions. And really said, look, what if we want to give you uh, as much ability as possible to run your own code uh, on those clusters? And there's a number of advantages you get from doing that because the cluster of machines we're running for Datomic is already set up to be auto-scaled and to be running in a VPC and a lot of things that are hard to learn about uh, and do well in AWS or in any cloud environment. So we're already solving those problems. And if we could let you take advantage of that solution by putting your own code in this context, um, we could minimize the amount of effort you have to do across the board to make cloud applications. And that's sort of the idea behind Datomic Ions is to say, what, what can we do given that you're running Datomic Cloud what can we do to maximize your power and leverage of what you're already running to write cloud applications? Uh, so that's the idea. The idea is that you want to write code, and we want to let you run that code on the Datama cluster where it's near the data and uh, takes advantage of the auto-scaling things we've set up. So this involves a bunch of does that make sense? <laughs> it, it, it does, I guess. My question is, if I'm going to run my code uh, sort of alongside the Datomic Cloud, it's not actually um, like transaction functions actually run in the same JVM as uh, you know a piece of Datomic, well, you know, the, the peer. So I, I would imagine there would be some more containment around the code that you're running in the cloud. Uh, no, there isn't. In fact, at all, uh, we want we let you run your code. It's because the, these are your instances, okay. and and you're paying for them, and you should be able to do whatever you like. And just like you could run any arbitrary code 
in instances you run in AWS, so too can you run uh, any arbitrary code you'd like on your Datomic instances. Oh, okay. So it does run it does run in the same, same JVM. It's not sandboxed, although the set of functions you uh, would like to have people be able to access from uh, query functions or uh, transaction functions must be explicitly uh, enumerated right. in a list. So you basically make a, an, an accepted list of functions that can be called. So there's a bunch of different uh, layers to accomplishing this job. The first is uh, the basic problem of how do we get your code on these boxes? They, they're started already. They're already running Datomic. You want to write an application and somehow make it run over there or be integrated with that. And so we're taking advantage of a capability of AWS's uh, called Code Deploy, uh, which is a technology that allows you to define uh, revisions of an application, which is logically a set of code, uh, and to deploy those revisions to running instances. And the way it works is that um, the instances have uh, an agent on them, and they're informed that there's a new revision, and they go and go through a life cycle where they find and uh, pull the new code onto the instances, and then restart the process. So they don't restart mm -hmm. the instance, they don't reboot the entire instance, they just restart the datomic process. Right. So the simple way to think about it is we're using code deploy to get your code from your machine onto the instances and then restart Datomic with your code in the class path of Datomic. So that Datomic restarts and the code you've written uh, appears in the class path and is therefore usable by the JVM that Datomic's running in and Datomic's own code. So code deploy is fantastic for that. Uh, it has a bunch of great facilities. It knows how to uh, interact with an auto-scaling group, which is what we set up in cloud, so that there may be more than one instance, and it will put it on one instance at a time and make sure each instance is, is okay and healthy right. as it rolls it out, and it can roll it back in various capabilities that, that again, are hard to accomplish without... So, so help me so that's. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to ask, yeah. help me understand what's the uh, what's missing from what AWS gives you that that you needed to put something in there. Uh, what's in, so, in other words, what's the what's the uh, kind of the final mile that you're filling in to to let all this happen? Well, there's a, it's it's not just a matter of a final mile. Mm -hmm. A traditional use a traditional use of code deploy would involve you setting up your instances and you, it would be completely your code that was running on the instance. Oh, I got gotcha. you. We had this, we had the special challenge where where we're trying to get your code and Datomic's code both to run on the instance, and we've started the instances already with Datomic's code running. So we're doing a, it's a sort of a hybrid strategy. Typically, with code deploy, you would be starting uh, the process on that instance, and everything about what it would run would be something you'd supply with code deploy. Now we're saying, well, half the code is already there. It's Datomic. Right. And the other half is novel. It's yours. Um, so that's what's really novel about this. Uh, the other thing we're doing that's more in the category of sort of last mile stuff is we're, we're automating a substantial amount of packaging and interacting with the code deploy requirements. 
So the next major sort of feature of IONS is uh, the development experience and what's, what's required to actually do it. Um, so if you typically deal with code deploy or AWS Lambda, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a few minutes, the burden of satisfying the requirements for interacting with those things and packaging stuff up, getting in a format um, that's acceptable to them with the right manifest files and then pushing the right buttons and APIs to do uh, the deployments is all on you. With IONS, it's completely automated. And what the strategy uh, that we've taken is one that is oriented towards allowing you to focus on writing application code as as you ordinarily would as a closure developer. That is to say that you want to write closure code and be finished, right. <laughs> essentially. And and that's what we're looking to achieve. So what we what we ask is that you write your closure application using the new tools depths um, support in the latest closure. Uh, and that involves specifying your dependencies in a depths.eden file. And essentially, we take it from there. So we'll, we analyze your depths.eden file. We figure out what libraries you're using, what code is being used locally. We allow you to utilize libraries that you have local versions of. You know, a classic mm-hmm. challenge with, with development is a sort of... Uh, chicken and egg problem. If you ever needed to work on two libraries at the same time, a lot of deployment systems require artifacts to be deployed. And so you can't have two half finished uh, ideas at the same time. Uh, That bothers me quite a bit. And so we, uh, we make that possible. So we analyze your depths at Eden and we say, okay, you're using these dependencies from either Maven or Git and you're using these local things, either local libraries and, of course, your local application. And uh, we do two things. We push all of the um, artifact-ish libraries out to S3, and then we make an application bundle of the local code, mm-hmm. and we put that on S3. So we ensure that everything that's needed to deploy your application is on S3, and we automatically interact with um, code deploy to say there is a revision of this application and it's called X and it's available for deployment. And that operation is called push. So you write a closure application ordinarily, there's no special stuff. Uh, you write a depths.eden file and you call push and it's now on S3 ready to be deployed. Um, there's one additional thing that you do, which is another file, which is a configuration of your ions. And it's in that file that you say, of all the code that I wrote and I pushed, these three functions are the ones that you're allowed to call. So that 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 list of accepted functions is, is in this file. And so that's that's a list of functions that are gonna get called by Datomic at the right time, or is that simply here are the functions that are in a sense exported from the things I've pushed from the code I've pushed to S3? That's right. That's right. There are there it ends up there are a few ways to invoke the code that you uh, that you deployed this way, mm-hmm. and that's sort of that's why we call them ions because there's there are different bonding opportunities. The two we've already talked about so far are um, transaction functions. So what will happen is you've written code in your application and you have you know my namespace slash 
transaction helper as a function that you wrote. Right. Having that function and pushed it, in, and we'll talk next about deploying it, you can then write a transaction that says, please call my namespace slash transaction helper in your transaction data, mm -hmm. and that will cause the function to get called. Similarly, you could write a, a helper function uh, in your application, your Ion application that uh, is for use during queries. And then and calling it is a matter of writing a query that um, refers to it. So you can only use transaction functions and transactions and functions and queries that you put on this accepted list. Right, right. Uh, so you can't call inner functions or other things. So that's pushing. And already, there it implies a few things. For instance, the fact that we push and then make a revision of an application in code deploy means that there must have been an application in code deploy. And one of the new features of Datomic is that, Datomic Cloud is that in addition to setting up everything for Datomic's operation, um, everything to uh, that underpins the ION support is also made uh, when you push the button that starts Datomic. So you push a button that starts Datomic, it automatically creates a code deploy application for you. It automatically creates uh, what's called a deployment group, which is the target of a deployment in code deploy uh, that targets the, uh, the instances that you're starting um, with the same script. So we've already made uh, a bucket for your code to go into, a code deploy application, and code deploy targets. So all the code deploy that's happening is being automated by Datomic and by the ION dev library that you use when you're developing. So you write code, you put it in Git, Datomic IONS understands Git and push understands Git, so it will, for instance, understand that what you're pushing corresponds to a commit, and therefore it can name the revision of the application uh, with the same name as the commit because it's consistent, or it will recognize that you're working with some live local code and that's unreproducible, and therefore we put it in a different place and force you to give it a name. Um, which we further qualify by saying this is unreproducible, which is not the kind of thing that you want to put into production, but it's the kind of thing that you need to do while you're developing. So you've you've made a revision of your application and you push push <laughs> pushed push. Uh, now it's on S3 and it's available to be deployed right. to one or more datomic clusters, and that's the second part of the recipe. Again, you've got this tooling essentially with IONS. And so you call Datomic ION uh, dev deploy, and that takes two arguments. It says which revision, which are one of the things you made as you progress through your editing of code, and where do you want it to go? Uh, so you say deploy, and you say one of the Datomic groups that you've started. This means that, for instance, you could be running more than one Datomic cluster one of which you consider to be the dev cluster, one of which you consider to be the staging cluster, and one of which you consider to be the production cluster. And you can be working on your app and have different revisions deployed of the same application to the different uh, clusters. So you say, where do you want to go? So you want to say, I want my latest code to go to my dev datomic cluster. And it will do the deployment part. And that's what I was describing before. Mm -hmm. it, it, it uses code deploy to trigger the instances in that group to grab the new code 
and to restart Datomic with the new code in the class path. And then you're ready to go. And that's sort of the plumbing of the code side. But the broadening of the mission was, uh, was twofold. It was not just get transaction functions and query functions running, but it was also and, and, and uh, make that just a closure development process. But it was, what more could we do? Like, what more do you want to accomplish? Right. Uh, most applications uh, don't run completely in isolation. They need to be connected to the outside world there. They're going to do that in one of a couple of ways. They're either going to be called by other programs. They may be called by other programs you know, that are running in the same VPC. They're sort of internal programs. So it's a service that serves other programs. It may be a program that needs to respond to events more broadly in your cloud ecosystem. Right. So AWS has events associated with uh, the notification service. They have events associated with things happening in S3, things happening in Dynamo. Basically, a lot of their services have the ability to generate events, so it's useful to be able to respond to those events. And the third category of things you might want to do more broadly, so sort of connecting to the rest of the world, is uh, talk over the web. You know, response requests coming right. in from the internet via HTTP. So the technology that's used to do that in the AWS world is something called AWS Lambda. And basically what Lambdas are are functions that don't have dedicated machines on which they run. They run on demand on sort of a fabric that AWS runs. Um, and they're capable of being connected to events or via the API gateway uh, connected to the web to sit behind a web endpoint. And so uh, I think that there, there are sort of two ways to think about lambdas. One is as sort of a computational fabric, and the other is sort of as connective tissue. Um, because we have a rich computational fabric in Datama Cloud, and we have a unique ability to run your code near the data and near the cache, uh, where it's super efficient to do so. Um, we're not so much interested in the computational aspect of Lambda, but we're very interested in tapping into the connectivity aspect of Lambda. And that's what we do. So the big thing that's different or that's new in IONS is that we also allow the functions you've written in Clojure to be called uh, via AWS Lambda. Now, that doesn't mean that they're running in Lambda. It just means that we set up Lambdas that, when you invoke them, cause the code that you wrote to run in the Atomic cluster and return the answer. This is a huge deal. This means that you can write an ordinary closure function and say, I would like this to be exposed as a Lambda and be done. Mm. Uh, and then you can go to the Lambda infrastructure and connect that Lambda to you know, an S3 event or an SNS event, or you can connect it to the back end of API Gateway, which serves the web. Um, so this is a giant deal, and all that's required is that if you go back to when you're developing, we talked about that ion config file. Right. In addition to that acceptable functions list, there's one other list where you can say, I'd like these three functions to be exposed as lambdas with these names. Uh, and by saying just that, we do all the rest of the work of creating lambdas, 
and make and uh, making sure that they're they know uh, who to call um, when they're deployed and uh, all of the proxying. So essentially, the lambdas we deploy have no logic in them except the ability to proxy to the datama cluster to do the work. Um, so we make those lambdas and we expose them and publish them and then you're ready to go. So now, in addition to having put new code on the datomic cluster and restarted it uh, in a rolling fashion, so it's not down, um, we've, we will you know, optionally, if you desire, create lambdas and start them. And those lambdas, when invoked, will call through. Um, they live in the same VPC and they'll call through to the datomic cluster which does the work and then returns the answer. So you have these very lightweight lambdas that are just proxies that call your code and your code still runs in the datomic process. So, so does uh, this mean that, uh, so my understanding is that one of the problems with running sort of JVM based uh, code in a lambda is that the lambdas kind of restart at arbitrary times and you might potentially sort of at random times suffer the startup cost of starting up the JVM. And it sounds like with really lightweight lambdas, you get away from some of that. We certainly minimize it, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is to minimize, we minimize what these lambdas need, require, and what they do when they start. Right. Um, and of course, we can continue to refine that. Um, but uh, yeah, the idea is that there's there's no code there. And there are many other challenges to lambdas because you're also running in a constrained memory footprint or you're trying to run in a constrained memory footprint because it costs more money to run in a bigger right. uh, image and various other things. So sort of all the complexity about preparing code to run inside lambda is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to think about running inside lambda. You're actually running in a pretty hefty JVM with a lot of memory and cache data and all the things that you're used to having. Um, and I think it's a much richer development environment. So essentially, you know, we give you the serverless because Datomic is, is the server for you. Right. Uh, as opposed to the Lambda fabric. What we're really looking for is the Lambda connectivity, which is a fantastic story for your broader architecture, right? Your, your Datomic application is sitting in the context of, of a bigger endeavor uh, in, in AWS, and, and Lambda is the glue for that. Um, so in this way, with a single development effort in a single application, uh, just writing closure functions, you push a button and you get them running in Datomic Cloud, serving transactions, queries, and lambdas. Uh, and I think that there's a ton of benefits that fall out of that. The first is you're focusing on your application. Um, there are a lot of moving pieces associated with this kind of development in the cloud and um, uh, that, that will never be uh, as simple as we would like but I think AWS services are fundamentally simple but the details are many right uh, and so we take care of that I think the computational model is really strong because you get to leverage the compute resources and the data locality of Datomic so it's the power you used to have when you had peers sort of just an inversion, right? We always said about peers is, um, you know, every peer gets their own brain and we were handing out brains. And now now the Datomic cluster is running brains in a scalable way uh, and you can give us your thoughts. <laughs> and, 
and that and that's where the marriage happens. But the data locality is a big um, value proposition of Datomic and part of what makes it unique. And so that's back. Um, you you have an extensive database with your own logic. That's always been something Datomic was about. That databases sort of always ended with kind of a terrible programming language and a limited set of things they could do. And, and Datomic was always about saying you can continue from what Datomic has with Closure, and that now is still true. Uh, you get this connectivity to your cloud uh, architecture with mm -hmm. the Lambda events. Uh, you can write a web app in a single function. So we also provide a library that uh, automatically will convert from the API gateways uh, JSON format for web requests and responses to the Eden format that's commonly used by Ring and Pedestal uh, and back and forth. Right. So that's automatically done at the bottom. Um, another big advantage, which I think is, uh, is something that people struggle with in the end when they do multi-tiered applications in the cloud, is that you're able to scale Datomic and your application together. So it, it, it's never really possible to sort of scale one tier of an app if, if both tiers are, are busy. Uh, you can't just add more machines to one tier. And uh, in particular, with things like uh, Lambda and services, it can be very difficult to think about um, turning it up and doing that in an automated way. So it's a big feature proposition of Datomic Cloud, not only that it scales horizontally, um, but that it does so elastically, so up and down, mm -hmm. um, and, and automatically, as opposed to, you know, let's have a meeting to make our cluster, you know, instead of four machines, it should be six. Um, so the nice thing now is because your application is running there, when you, when you set up auto-scaling for Datomic, you're simultaneously setting up auto-scaling for your application. It's a complete set of challenges you don't need to contend with, and you don't need to try to make the two match. Uh, it's a single set of knobs and a single thing you're looking at and saying, my latencies are going up higher than I'd like. I want to have more resources be available and set that as a rule and have that happen automatically up and down over the course of the, the day. Um, so I think the combination of all this uh, really makes developing for the cloud substantially more, you know, you want to use the word agile mm -hmm. uh, than, than it traditionally has been uh, with a focus on, uh, so what we're trying to do is to keep closure programming, uh, to keep cloud programming, closure programming. And that is to say that you're going to focus on writing functions. For instance, a web application is a function, right? It's a function right. of a, a HTTP request to a response. And all you really should be writing is that function. Everything else is plumbing, uh, overhead, implementation details, operational hassles, and things like that. And uh, I think developers are drowning in that. And I think the cloud uh, is just making that harder. There are a lot of benefits to being uh, in the cloud, in particular to being on AWS. Um, but you have to be able to take advantage of all the facilities they're providing. So sort of doing that for you means that you can continue to focus on uh, writing functions. And, and I think we've really delivered on that promise. I mean, you write functions and, and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, there's some integration stuff. Admittedly, you know, the lambdas will exist and you'll need to connect them to the events 
or connect them to API Gateway. We're not sure how much of that will automate because there are many, many services to which you can connect. Right. Um, but other than that, uh, you really can focus on writing an, an, an application and push two buttons, push and deploy, and be running in the cloud. And I think it's going to be the fastest path to the cloud for Clojure by far. All right. So what is the, what's the current state of IONS? Is it available now? Can I use it right now? Is it still, are you putting the finishing touches on it? Where, where are we with it? Uh, it's in the pipeline with Marketplace. That takes a, a little while, but by the time this is released, I'm sure it will be out. I think uh, that's the, probably the most optimistic thing you've said here. Uh. I have a lot of optimism about this. I think this is a, this is a game-changing kind of thing for the Clojure community. I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, this gives people a, a, a fantastic way to move quickly and build well-architected systems for the cloud. Um, it certainly, it seems like um, it speaks to something I think a lot, which is that whenever some new facility or you know a feature of something comes out, people kind of confuse the work that you need to do with it with the benefit that you're getting from it. So, you know, AWS is great, and yeah, I have to work hard at it, and they people tend to blur those two things together. And it sounds like uh, you're splitting the you know, get the goodness out of it without having to do the, the sort of busy work to make it work. Yeah, yes, that, that is the idea. Although, you know, I would say that there's, uh, there are many solutions that are kind of trying to make things easy. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, ending up with a well-architected solution is often still your problem. In other words, there are facilities that will let you push buttons and they'll start a bunch of stuff in the cloud for you. And I think that is not enough. Um, certainly, superficially, ION seems like kind of a recipe for that. And it is. From ease of use standpoint, it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're taking a whole bunch of stuff and taking it out of your face. Uh, but you don't want to turn around and discover um, you know, that you've got an architecture that um, is unsupportable. And everything about cloud, Datomic Cloud, and IONS on top of it is what you know is well factored uh, is a series of simple things is a bunch of things that do one thing well uh, composed together it has the closure you know uh, ideology all the way through it and I'm hopeful that that benefit which is harder to see uh, dominates the experience because the ease uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lack right ease is a lack of <laughs> effort. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, but, uh, but quality and uh, reliability and uh, ability to change things and having things be orthogonal so that you can have knobs to turn that make sense and have effects that you can predict um, is a deeper benefit right. that uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're providing. Right. It's really a question of how how are you framing the ease? Is it very narrowly framed to, oh, it's easy to do X right now, or is it a little more widely framed of, you know, how hard is it to uh, maintain over time or get myself into trouble or yeah, have, have yeah. some black box? Exactly. Those kinds of things. Yeah. That's right. Or how much do you need to know about the insides in order to make decisions? Right. 
Um, and I think we've, how leaky we've separated. is the abstraction? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you, so, you know. Um, uh, so, so you mentioned that that Ion certainly leverages the new uh, dependency facilities in Clojure, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit because I think uh, in talking to people, I'm not sure that uh, the the wonders of that has really uh, sunk into the community completely. Yeah. So I, I think it's another one of these take it apart jobs. Certainly there are solutions in the space of dependencies and packaging and deployment and builds uh, that already exist you know, in the Java community and are leveraged either directly or indirectly by the Clojure community and then more tools in the Clojure community. Um, when I look at the suite of things that's generally available, I see things being combined in particular i see dependencies uh being combined with build and deployment yes and uh i always wanted that to be in two pieces and so what uh tools depths is is that division it says this is just be about dependencies and the construction of the class path and so it may not seem that glamorous. It's certainly a subset of what things that do dependencies and builds do, um, but it's designed to be composed in a broader system. And I think that's where uh, a huge benefit arises. For instance, the packaging and deployment aspect of IONS is very different than Maven, than making stuff for Maven. And, uh, but it's completely well served by the dependency declarations of tools depths. So having those two jobs be separate means I don't need a Maven or Linegan plugin to do ions because I, I adopted this bigger thing that you can only make do something else by plugging in uh, or um, mixing in. And uh, so th that's the value proposition. I think... I, I really like it. I like seeing a dependencies file that's just about dependencies. And um, it certainly made for something that Stu, who did the work on this deployment uh, and packaging, uh, was able to leverage. I think there's a lot of work that we did for IONS that will make um, tools depths better, more programmable, make it possible for other programs to um, analyze dependencies and understand the class path ramifications so that they can do things like we're doing, right? Which is customized class paths and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I expect a lot more benefits to come from that. Um, outside of that, that's this kind of stuff that IONS uses. Um, the general closure command line launcher is a giant thing for the newcomer experience. And I understand that closure old timers already know how to do all of that. Um, but the story has never been great for grab closure and start it up and be able to consume libraries. And now it is great. Uh, uh, when you when you uh, brew install closure, you're able to use closure and libraries directly with no other stuff and and therefore not the learning curve and overheads of more stuff. Um, that's not to say that tools depths is trying to uh, replace those things. It doesn't attempt to do much of what they do. What I'm hopeful, though, is that it it becomes responsible for that part of the job, and those tools focus on 
the other parts, uh, packaging and builds, building and things and, like that. Yeah, and deployments. That's right. Um, and then we get we'll have an ecosystem of things that are more composable, as opposed to you know having to make a near, uh, you know, a religious decision between Linegan <laughs> and Boot. Um, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, and those are great tools, and I'm sure they will continue to be used. Uh, but I'm a big fan of the work Alex has done on Tools Depths, and we work together on it. Uh, I think it has some important uh, good ideas uh, in it, and uh, some of them are, we have yet to fully uh, deliver upon, but the idea of a class path being more than sort of a dumb list of paths uh, and jars uh, is an important one. Retaining the connection to the library, uh, the libraries that engendered the stuff being on the class path, uh, lets you do cool things, including, for instance, at runtime, saying add a new library, and we've already uh, built some stuff for doing that, which I think will make it into closure. All right. Um, I, Again, helping the developer experience for newcomers who, you know, I started the REPL already and then somebody told me I should try Encanter or something. And now what do I do? How, do I have to restart or can I do something? Um, so we can do that in a more sensible way because the semantics uh, around dependencies are much stronger in tools depths than they usually are. Uh, another big benefit there is the idea of... Um, not necessarily breaking free or breaking away from Maven, but thinking more broadly than Maven does. Maven's sort of a, a place where you say, I'm in Maven, and therefore all artifacts are Maven. And what we wanted to say with Tools Depths is, I have dependencies, Maven is underneath that, and other things could be too. Um, for instance, being able to use uh, code that's in Git. Right. When Maven, right. When Maven started, you know, Git was not pervasive, uh, but Git has a lot of really great qualities and now is pervasive. And I think uh, it behooves us to build dependency systems and, and code management systems that take advantage of the fact that people are working with these great content addressable immutable code systems. That's we should we should know about that. Too much of Maven involves people naming things, you know, arbitrarily as humans and being disconnected from the code truth, which is well known when you're using Git. Um, so that's another big feature we get we get out of Tools Steps. So I like it. It's it's a small thing. It's orthogonal. It composes. Yep, certainly certainly Tools Steps uh, hits one of the things that I believe strongly in, which is some of the most valuable things in the world are the useful but kind of boring or less glamorous kind of projects that that you do and life gets a lot better for people but they're not terribly sexy yeah i i agree with that uh, although tools depths is pretty sexy i mean it's it restarts the <laughs> it restarts the REPL in a hurry that's for sure yeah um it, it does have a lot of benefits people have been seeking so uh but yeah it depends on your idea of sexy i guess i suppose so yeah <laughs> so um uh, I, I think there's a fair number of people who uh, would shoot me if I let you off of this podcast without asking you if you, uh, so you've talked about sort of the dynamic class path uh, 
or dependency, I'm not saying this right, but essentially dynamic code loading of the in the uh, uh, enclosure. Is there anything else uh, you're thinking about for closure of the language? The, there will be more work on spec. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about how spec deals with collections and thinks about collections and how that differs and ought to differ from the way traditional programming languages do uh, parameterized types. So we'll see some stuff uh, around that. Uh, I think our short-term agenda is to do well by uh, Java 9. We have a bunch of things to clean up around that. And we may even do something short-term just to get clean with the module system and the other Java 9 changes. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, closure should be about the libraries. I've given several talks about, I mean, closure should grow primarily in the library right. space. It's a list. It's not supposed to be a super fancy convoluted programming language with the latest and greatest ideas, you know, attached as it proceeds to get larger and larger and more complex. It's supposed to be simple. So from the language standpoint, it's going to remain simple. Uh, so it should grow primarily in the library space. Um, I have given talks over the last year or two about the problems of libraries. And I certainly think that languages and tools like spec and tools like tools.deps um, need to work together to, to um, change programming from being, uh, from pretending as it so often is to be about creating an application in a moment to the reality, to embracing and, and helping with the reality that programming is actually about working on something over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and it's philosophically, I think that if there's a, if there's a big problem in programming that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in now, having done closure and having done datomic and sort of taken on language and database. The, the problem I see right now, if I were to make it as philosophical as possible, is the fact that um, programming languages, type systems, build systems are completely oriented about saying this, this combination of things I have right this second, you know, makes sense. Uh, but that is not enough because programs are made out of separate parts all the separate parts have independent evolutions um, you need to have your program do new things over time and yet your program needs to remain somewhat compatible with what you used to do and so the the challenge of programming is not well addressed by things that think you know if everything uh, makes sense today mm -hmm. you're done uh, you need to think more about the relationship between the program you're writing today and the program you wrote yesterday and the program you're going to need to write tomorrow. And this is, uh, <laughs> takes you right head on to a bunch of problems with the way that we do libraries, dependencies, and sort of mutability in the large. So, um, so, so help me understand this at the risk of quoting Sam Irving I'm just a simple country programmer. So how does this larger sense of like evolution over time 
how would that make the world look different to me as someone who's building the next feature or fixing the next bug? So most programming tools are oriented towards telling you the thing you just did won't work because uh, it's in conflict with this other thing right. right now. And what they don't tell you is the thing you just did will break everyone who's been using your library because mm. you changed it in a way that's compatible with them. And as you start building applications out of libraries, which we do, that's that's right. what everyone does. Um, we don't have a type checker that crosses time. And mm. therefore, we don't see those problems. So, uh, you know, I gave a talk, uh, well, now it's a while ago, about um, change. And and I think as, a, as your average programmer, what I would love for the new world to do for you is to is to not talk about change as sort of a mechanical thing um i can go to a file and i can type a new comment into it and it changed i can go to a function and add an argument to it and it changed i can go to a function and switch around the orders of the arguments and it changed change is not an adequate word mm. for talking about those activities right the first two don't really matter to somebody the historical or extant consumer of your program and the third one really does quite a bit so i think if we understood dependencies better if we understood um the contracts of functions better right which is to say i require that you give me this and i promise to provide you that that those requirements can shrink and those promises can grow but not vice versa and if if we get a grip on that then we have the idea of changing programs, knowing they're either growing or breaking, because those are the two semantics that matter to us. And I think we want to help people avoid breaking their programs uh, and to give them constructs that allow them to grow their programs. I mean, it's, it's the flip side of checking uh, is sometimes being in the way of growth, being in the way of changes that are okay. Um, so we have to start thinking about it that way. Then we can have libraries that aren't catastrophes, you know, moving forward on dependencies being some sort of terrifying activity. Um, so I would hope that as a, as a consumer, we would start having conversations about change versus breakage. You'd have tools that could help you see when one or the other of those two things was happening. And we'd have programs and libraries that were, were much more flexible about combining um, things that have changed over time at different rates. Right now, the system we have is incredibly brittle, um, and I think it could be a lot better. Hmm. Well, that is fascinating. Um, all right. Well, I, you know, geez, it's we've been talking for almost an hour here. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I should ask you: Is there is there anything uh, on your mind uh, that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention as we're we're sort of seeing the end of this hour here? I still I can't believe it's been an hour. I just run on and on and on. I think I've, I think I've said enough <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I appreciate the time to talk about these things. But ah, sure, it's been fascinating. All right, well, let, let me ask you the. Uh, the question we ask every guest at the end of, of the hour here, which is, do you have any advice for us? 
Do I have any advice for you? Yeah. Well, not for me personally, but uh, I'll take it if you're offering it. Yeah, I mean, it's not novel for me, but uh, you know, I would encourage people to think about design as as uh, as taking things apart, um, to 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 roll that idea around in your head. That's what Ions is about. That's what Tools Depths is about, and that's what Closure is about. I think the extent to which you take that approach to the problems you're trying to solve, the better off you'll be. So, so you're suggesting uh, design as more like a deconstruct rather than a, like we tend to say we build things, which is like a putting together. Yeah, so what design is, is taking things apart such that, that it's possible to compose them in various ways. But if you skip the step of taking them apart, then you just make large things. I think every programmer has come across their share of large things they were unhappy with. Well, all right. Well, I want to thank you very much, Rich, for taking the time to talk to us, being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me and, and, and hosting. And we'll certainly have you back uh, just as soon as we possibly can. So with that, I think I'm going to close it down. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And this has been the CognaCast. You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash CogniCast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Closure and Datomic creator Rich Hickey. Our host this week was, well, me. I'm Russ Olson. I'm at Russ Olson. That's at R-U-S-S-O-L-S-E-N on Twitter and most of the other places. Episode cover art is by, well, me, Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jarrett Benford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.